Interest in true crime has exploded over the last several years alongside the universal presence of social media. But what happens when you put the two together? My name is M. William Phelps. I'm an investigative journalist and true crime author. I've dedicated the past 20 years of my life to help families of the missing and murdered. Join us. We're crossing the line. I just want to start this week's episode by handing it off to my producer extraordinaire, Everett. First of all, Everett, how are you? I'm good. How are you? You seem to be edgy in your seat today. You're rearing a get-go about this subject, aren't you? I'm a little wary of what you have to tell me in regards to the subject matter today, but let's go for it. You're all excited about this, as I am. It needs to be done. You brought it up. I just want to hit you back a little bit on this, because when I brought this TikTok stuff up a month ago, you kind of poo-pooed it away on me. You kind of ignored me. You defended it a little bit, and I was a little bit like... I was a little bit like with my tail between my legs that night. Like, <laughs> I was a little sad. Like Winnie the Pooh, what's, what's his Eeyore? name? Uh, or No, the kid. The little kid on Winnie Robin. the Pooh. Christopher <laughs> Yeah, I was like Christopher Robin that night. I was like, she's, she's not getting it. This is well, very offensive to me. I'm giving you some props for that. We will definitely get to that. That is definitely a subject matter that I want to discuss, but it's also part of a larger issue that I think will apply. So the larger issue is what really got you going on this. Got you. Okay. So it was a combination. We worked together. Yes. We collaborated. I planted a seed. You ran with it. Yeah. I watered it. You watered it. Good metaphor. Okay. Okay. Because, you know, I I have a problem with being dismissed. I allow people to step all over me. Well, that is another episode. That's a therapy episode we can have. And I have to stop, but yeah, so I felt a little bit like Christopher Robin, but I don't anymore. So let's get on with this stuff here. (laughs) Okay. What do you have for me this week? Well, Phelps, you mentioned that you came across some TikTok videos of makeup artists applying makeup while they talk through points of well-known murder cases. And I could tell it touched a nerve for you. I was really offended by that. Why? If you're going to talk about it, it has to be serious. You can't make light of it by putting on makeup or working out or doing the dishes or whatever, you know? You're talking about somebody's family member who died, who was murdered. And to talk about a color of blush and go, well, you know, he was walking down the street and he slit her throat. I just think that's offensive. Well, those videos are shocking, yes, which I think is kind of the point. It's why they're getting tons of views. And I want to talk more about those later, but I think the issue is much bigger than just these videos. Social media itself has become ubiquitous alongside this explosion in the rise of true crime. And I think that they're intersecting in a way that we've never seen before. You know, the way I look at true crime is that there are two different sides to covering it. There's the investigative journalism side where people are actively working on cases like yourself. And then there's the part that is just storytelling, you know, just explaining the stories that have happened to victims. And that's what I want to discuss, not the infotainment angle, because we've covered that already in an earlier episode, but more so the part in which people have been sharing true crime cases on various social media platforms. It raises this question of, are they acting as an additional source of information that could possibly help reach more people and raise necessary awareness? Or are they hurting a case by possibly derailing the investigative process? Well, I think in many respects, 
in many of these cases, they're doing it just for the clicks, just for the likes, just to be popular. Well, I I did some research and I found that according to the Pew Research Center, seven in 10 people are using apps like Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, Snapchat, and TikTok to connect with one another, you know, to engage with news content, share information, and just to entertain themselves. But when you mix in a niche interest like true crime, there are important issues and moralistic questions that we need to address. And that's why we're calling this episode, We're Not Talking About Gabby Petito. While we'll reference her a lot in this episode, we're not actually talking about her because, well, you've heard the story. Right. She was a young van life blogger traveling the country with her fiance, taking these beautiful pictures and videos for her Instagram page and YouTube channel. She disappeared and her fiance wouldn't talk to the cops. And then he fled. Her body was eventually found. It was determined she was strangled to death, and his was recently discovered as well. Everything about this case is just horrible. Absolutely. So what we are talking about is the emerging trend of social media users who are impacting an investigation for the better or to the detriment of a case. You know, the best and most recent example of this involves the Gabby Petito case. We're not discussing what happened to her for any reason other than it's a case that has just dominated the headlines since the summer. And any details listeners may have missed can just be easily found online at this point. Right. But there are a number of reasons why the Petito case garnered such overwhelming attention across the country. First off, she's young, pretty, white, basically a perfect trifecta for media coverage, an issue we'll discuss in a bit. Yeah. And the fact that she herself was a vlogger and her friends were probably jealous of her living this dream life, traveling and being with the person she loved the most. Third, we're living in this age where everything we do is basically documented online. So there's this vast amount of information that internet sleuths can go through to play armchair detectives from home. And like you mentioned, Petito was a van life blogger, so she was part of that social media community. And TikTokers undoubtedly identify with her. Absolutely. What happened to her could have happened to them. So you've said it about true crime, watching true crime. You know, I can identify sometimes with that could have been me. Yeah, it's like when we watch a case and there's just a little similarity with the victim and it hits a little closer to home for you, right? So like right when that community is affected we realize how big it really is. And Gabby Petito really is everybody on TikTok, right? She is kind of right in that demographic that hits TikTok. Absolutely. Looking at it now, the Gabby Petito hashtag has more than 1.8 billion views on TikTok. That to me is just holy shit. I, I, I can't wrap my mind around that number. 1.8 billion. Billion. I know. It's it's insane. I know. And and we've seen creators who have shared unconfirmed reports and damaging theories online, but to play devil's advocate. And you always do. Sometimes social media has helped in turning up new leads. It has. I am not going to argue that with you at all. But you mentioned a word. Armchair sleuths. Once you get in the right. armchair and you start trying to investigate a crime and you have no fucking idea what you're doing, you're hurting the case. I hear you, but let me present you some facts that I found that may sway you. I love facts. <laughs> facts I can digest. Facts I can deal with. 
So let's start with the good. Going back to the Petito case, there was a college student named Miranda Baker who was driving through the Grand Teton National Park with her boyfriend when they picked up Petito's fiance, Brian Laundrie, as he was supposedly hitchhiking alone. She joined TikTok shortly after and posted a video to explain what happened. But before he came in the car, he offered to pay us like $200 to give him a ride, like 10 miles. So that was kind of weird. Now, this event occurred on August 29th, which we now know was more or less around the time that Petito was murdered. And interestingly enough, Baker said that she was made aware of laundry from TikTok, and therefore she notified police of the brief encounter that she had. A department spokesperson confirmed her report and said at the time that they were potentially utilizing her info into their timeline. I mean, that is wonderful. And that's how this can work, right? I I don't really see how social media played a part in this. I mean, they were like, they picked up a a potential suspect, Mm -hmm. right? And they reported it to the police. So I think anything after that, is gravy. I mean, they can post stuff, they can do this, they can do that, but Mm -hmm. they did the right thing by talking to the police about what happened. Well, the part that I find really interesting in that is that it made me more aware of just the generational divide and how we get our news. Great point. And this girl was saying that basically the only reason why she realized who she picked up may have been the suspect was because she was watching TikToks that were about the case and saw his face on videos, recognized him and went to the police. So it's just like this divide now of there is a younger generation that does exist. And the way they consume news is not the same way that you and I consume news. You know, they're probably not watching TV, probably not watching the local news. Definitely not. There might not be on Twitter or Facebook. We've seen it with political news through things like TikTok and Snapchat. And just last week, there was that girl in North Carolina who was rescued from a kidnapping situation after she had flashed a hand signal at someone on the highway. And that person recognized it as a distress signal that actually was popularized on TikTok and is known as being a signal for help. And thankfully, that girl was saved after that person called the authorities. I find it really interesting because... It's this forum to let this younger generation be more aware of something and be able to help in their way through that channel. So they are getting their, quote, news from TikTok, from Twitter, from Facebook. And you make an excellent point. Which is why we also are seeing news organizations creating accounts on TikTok, on Snapchat, you know, like there you go. Washington Post, Yahoo News, CNN, you know, they're on those accounts, too, because they're getting the news to the younger generation, which is really interesting. When I go on TikTok and Twitter and Instagram, which, you know, is not my favorite thing to do, I am trying to reach that generation for sure because I want Mm -hmm. them to listen to the show to get the information. Similarly, the attention that the Petito case has garnered over the months, it's also helped other cases. To date, police have found the remains of at least nine other people unrelated to the Petito Laundry searches. This is according to Newsweek. It's shined a light on missing people of color, which has been a big discussion in recent months. You know, Jelani Day, Lauren Cho, Jennifer Caridad, Daniel Robinson. You know, the families of these missing people say that they're also trying to garner the same kind of interest on social media after seeing how it was used to help find the remains of Gabby Petito. It's an issue that 
Gabby Petito's family is well aware of. During a recent press conference, her dad, Joseph Petito, said that all missing persons deserve the same level of attention that his daughter received. I want to ask everyone to help all that are missing and need help. And if you don't do that for other people that are missing, that's a shame. Because it's not just Gabby that deserves that. For me, the issue is... As Gabby Petito's father says, every human being should get the same amount of attention. So I'm glad that it's getting attention now. I really am because it should be discussed. It should be aired. So let's take a quick break. I'll calm down a little bit because I got a feeling I'm going to be enraged when we come back. You know, if we want to go deeper into things that social media has helped with, let's not forget what happened on January 6th this year. You know, it's an example of how social media was used for good when users helped track down hundreds of people that were suspected of taking part of the attack on the U.S. Capitol. And I just looked this up that 684 people have been arrested and charged with crimes from that day. You know, and it's a result of the FBI tracking them down using social media, but also civilians using social media to ID them. You know, and the number is expected to keep growing. And remember years ago, Arab Spring. Right. We, we saw it happen live on Twitter and Facebook, and we saw what those poor people were going through. That is just incredible that somebody with a phone can now document live what's going on in a country that's really closed up and kind of mm-hmm. co- uh, the communism mm-hmm. rules, uh, uh, terror rules. And here's a guy sitting in the corner of an abandoned building with gorillas all around him, with terrorists all around him. And he is live on Twitter reporting that. Right is phenomenal. That is how this stuff can really work for the good. And I mean, not to mention like the shooting, unjust shooting of many people, especially black men in the past few years. If cell phones with cameras were not around. I can't breathe. I can't breathe. We'd have never heard that. We'd have never heard that. George Floyd. So imagine how many times it happened before that we are not aware of just because camera cell phones weren't around. Now we're getting into what I really support and what I really love about social media and true crime and crime and documenting it and reporting on it. Exactly. Well, now that I've got you on this side, let's try the other one. Let's try. Let me try not to push more buttons. Oh, boy. Push them. While <laughs> everybody I mean, everybody else pushes my buttons, Everett, you ought to take <laughs> a shot at it too. I mean, listen, like while the role social media has played in investigations has been helpful at times, we know that it can create problems for law enforcement and investigators who are trying to just sort through, you know, thousands of leads. You know, you brought up journalists, and I think a great example of The bad of this is what happened during the Boston Marathon bombing in 2013. You know, it was such a public, well-documented event. There was this hysteria that swept over social media when it happened, with people scanning through every photo and video that had been posted in the hours before trying to ID these two bombers. And then the conspiracy people come out. 
Right. I mean, it was mayhem, you know, and and I even took part in some of that because I was working at the New York Daily News at the time. And I was trying to help out the reporters in the newsroom. I remember there was very little information to go off of. And so I remember going on these sites that I had never heard of or visited before, like Reddit and 4chan and where people were posting frame by frame images, trying to ID what we knew only at the time was two men with backpacks on. It was basically trying to find a needle in a haystack, really. Didn't the New York Post even get into trouble for doing that? Yeah, though they sure did. I mean, they they slapped the headline bag men across the front page cover the next day. And it featured a photo of two men who were not the suspects. Wow. You know, and they ended up suing and winning a defamation suit against the tabloid. But what sucks Good for is them. I, you know, Googled their names recently and this situation is still forever tied to their names, you know? And all they did was just go and be spectators at a huge annual event. Once this shit is out there on the internet, you're tied to it for life. And here's how bad it can get. So a prosecutor in a case that I wrote a book about, he was at war with the killer and her family, right? They were at war heading towards the trial. And he claims, and it's been proven, I don't know it was her family, but it was it was definitely the killer's people, put out stuff about him being a pedophile online. About the lawyer? Yeah, about the prosecutor. So that he was tied to pedophilia online. They made that shit up. They're trying to discredit him. Like Scientology sometimes is claimed to do. It's like politics, right? Where you just find dirt on each other to discredit the other person. But yeah, I mean, once a headline is above your head on the internet. It's very hard to scrub that off. That's it. And you hear cases about people who like still can't get jobs because of a Google search. being misidentified in a case. And that Google search can ruin literally your life. Yep. You're banished to your basement eating Cheetos, drinking Pepsi, and playing video games. (laughs) Well, going back to the Petito case, there's this couple, these travel vloggers, Jen and Kyle Bethune, who go under the YouTube name Red, White, and Bethune. They claim that they spotted Petito and Laundry's van in GoPro footage that they had recorded from their own vehicle while they were camping in late August. And so the video showed like this parked white van that looked identical to the Ford Transit van that Gabby and Brian Laundrie had. And we came across a white van that had Florida plates, a small white van. We were going to stop and say hi because we're from Florida too, but the van was completely dark. There was nobody there. So we decided to continue on our way. Gotta be a white van, right? It's always a fucking it's always white van. the white van. It's always the white van. So Jen Bethune said that she had contacted the FBI after she had found the footage and was told by them to submit it through the FBI's online tip website. But then she also uploaded the video to her YouTube channel. Of course. Mind you, it was edited down to this produced 14-minute vlog with commentary. Yeah. And to date, the video has over 2.5 million views. That was the goal when they put it up. Right. I mean, authorities said that they believe that the footage is credible and that Petito's remains were found nearby. But why didn't the vloggers just go straight to the police in the first place? Because they wanted likes and hits. Exactly. I mean, it just, it raises this question that I think people on social media keep forgetting in that... Are you sharing information in an effort to help or are you actually 
exploiting the death of someone for views and likes. And I would say that 90% of the time you're exploiting the death for views and clicks and likes. Not to defend them, I think that a lot of people just don't even realize what they're doing. I agree with that. And it's just like, you want to shake them and be like, don't you know? Don't you understand like this content? We're here to tell them, stop it. We're here to tell them, Knock stop that. I mean, you <laughs> or have to look at it differently. Or just think, right? Just think. Right. If you have information about an active missing person case, share it with the police. And that's it. See something, say something, but not on social media first. Or last. I mean, because you have to have a prosecution. There's all kinds of different aspects of a case as it's active, as it's open. Right, and for all you know, the the information you have might hurt the case because it's active. Or it might help the case and help a conviction. But if you put Mm -hmm. it online first, right, there's a good chance it's not going to be able to be used in court because— any right. good defense attorney could say, oh, that tape's been stepped on. People it's have- been viewed millions of times. Also, like, what are the chances of getting a juror that That's it. isn't familiar with it? Right. So, so there's a lot of dangerous ground that you're walking on with this. I mean— Well, I think this satirical video that I found, it's created by a TikToker named Jessica Dean, explains it best. Oh, oh, you haven't heard of Gabby Petito? Oh my God, girl, you are missing out. This stuff is so good. I made a 28 part monetized series on my TikTok all about it, going over every single detail, including her Spotify playlist. Yeah, I just dig up every inch of this poor girl's life for my personal entertainment. You should go watch it. I I love that she's basically calling out all these online creators and influencers who are clearly missing the point. She's saying it to that generation, which I love. She's saying it in a satirical way, and she's speaking their language and telling them what they're doing wrong. All these people who are looking for that five, 10-second video that's going to get them two million likes, and it doesn't matter who they exploit while they do it, and that shouldn't be. It's scary how easy it is that literally there are some people that just forget that they are talking about actual human lives. You know, like they're basically dehumanizing the victims of these violent crimes. I, that's, wh- that's why on this show, Crossing the Line, we bang on about victims and their stories over and over and over again, because the victim's story and true crime is getting watered down. It's becoming more about true crime itself rather than the victim's. Right. And when you throw in something like social media, it's like this race now to see who can post the latest news update, right? Who could be the quickest, who could share the most That's a great absurd point. conspiracy theory about a developing case. You know, it's a free-for-all. And I've also seen this, again, firsthand from my experience working in a newsroom where Twitter was on the rise I've seen what it's like to to have that rush, right? To get that that high from knowing that you're breaking some news that right. no one else has, you know, especially when you're racing against the clock, fear that someone else has the same information and you want to get you want to get first. You want to get that scoop and be be tied to like having that exclusive. You're racing against the click now, not the clock. Exactly. You know, and a lot of times that rush outweighs the necessary steps that we need to take, you know, like fact-checking or even going through a legal approval. A vetting. Exactly. And, and, and here's another point. You know, 
Not everybody on the internet knows that a lot of the shit on the internet is really not real. It's not factual. Really? And and when we get to social media, especially social media, you know, we ramp that up by 10 or maybe a hundred. Tell that to my relatives on Facebook. Oh God. <laughs> oh God. I'm sorry, meta. <laughs> oh yeah. Meta. Meta. You know there's an agenda behind changing that name. Let's get rid of that. It's like, let's get rid of Facebook because it's got a bad taste in everybody's mouth right now. Let's change it. But that's, again, another discussion. But yeah, I mean, you have to take responsibility for what you put on the internet, whether it be your Twitter account, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok. Be responsible. Yes. And, And I'll go right to comedians. Comedians on TikTok, I love, I love comedians on TikTok. And the reason Mm -hmm. I love comedians on TikTok is because they get nailed for saying the slightest bit of uh, something that's politically incorrect and they get attacked. Mm -hmm. But on TikTok, it doesn't stop them. They can come out against those attackers on TikTok. And I love that about that. Right. I mean, those platforms do give you that forum to respond, which they used to not have, right? Right. And I'm talking about responsibility. People need to take responsibility. I think if you're one of those people that it's quick to rush to post something and it turns out to be false, own up to it. You can take things down. Yes. You Or you can clarify. It's like in print, you know, where you write a correction. You have to be responsible. If you're putting out something that's fake and it's getting spread and you're seeing it retweeted or reposted or re-whatever so many thousands of times, you either take it down or update the caption or something with the correct news. You can't keep the incorrect news up there just because it's giving you more likes, which we know how social media works with algorithms. And the more likes you get, the higher you are up on, you know, the suggested pages and the more accounts will follow you and blah, 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 blah. But you got to put some ethics in, in this race for clicks. Well, there's money involved too. So that comes into play, right? Exactly. So... We're going to unpack some more of this. Let's take a quick break, and we'll be right back. So, Phelps, there's something that I've been noticing in the stuff I've been watching lately that I really hope is not going to be a trend, and it's YouTubers who share conspiracy theories who are being featured in true crime documentaries. So far to date, I've seen this happen two times now. One in that Cecil Hotel docuseries on the disappearance of Elisa Lam. And in the recent HBO Max documentary, What Happened, Brittany Murphy. You know, and while both of those stories do technically involve some type of conspiracy and and rumors, it just, it's just, it seems tacky to give people who share these baseless claims online. Any publicity at all. Any Any, attention. You know, it just adds this layer of disrespect to the subject. You know, it's just tasteless. For me, it's non-information. You know what I mean by that? It's meaningless to me. It's like, when you put somebody like that in a documentary, I mean, you're saying I don't have enough information, you know, because why would I add a conspiracy theory to something? I always say this when I'm investigating the case. The simplest answer is usually the answer. It's not some... 35-year-old guy lives in his mother's basement who drives a white van who abducted the girl. 
it's probably the neighbor who was stalking her and had an obsession with her. It's that's probably mm. what happened, right? So when we add conspiracy theories to true crime, boy, we're really saying In a way, it's like the video version of the clicks that we were talking about, right? It's like That's it. You nailed it. It's like you're adding in filler to expand the amount of episodes that you have, to expand the run. And the market. To get more money in the market. The demographics. If we can get right. the conspiracy people to watch, we, we've got a whole nother half million people we can get to watch, right? Right. I mean, you've done documentaries. Like, how do you feel in relation to your experience? Uh, for me, as an executive producer, I would never put a conspiracy theorist in a true crime documentary ever. Never, ever, ever. And there's another trend that paranormal and true crime that's starting to happen now. No disrespect to those YouTubers, like do what you got to do. But, you know, to the documentarians, please do not give conspiracy theorists more light unless your project is actually about conspiracy theories. Yeah. It's like it's like you do a 9-11 documentary and then you involve the. Yeah. You you don't even want to get started with that. When it comes down to it, true crime is only getting more and more popular and. You know, there's just this this endless amount of content that's being made basically every day, you know, and on top of TV shows and podcasts, there's now this growing trend, one that you brought up to me, Phelps, I'm giving you props of true crime makeup videos on YouTube and TikTok. Today, I just want to sit down, get ready, and then also talk about crime, murder mysteries, stuff like that. I don't even know how to approach this without sounding insensitive at all. It's basically like taking the popularity and fascination of the makeup tutorial videos that got so popular years ago. But instead of showing you how to draw a cat eye with your eyeliner, these YouTubers are just telling you stories of old murder cases. You know, they're not adding anything new. I I mean, I brought it up to you because, you know, here I am unwinding for the day one night and I go down a rabbit hole in TikTok. I don't do it often, but I was this night. And for some reason, bang, I scroll up and here's this woman putting on makeup, talking about, uh, I, I don't know, Ted Bundy, maybe, I, I, if I remember correctly. And I'm like, my mind didn't accept what was happening at first. It's like, what does the makeup have to do with Ted Bundy? And then I got it. And I was offended by that as, as not only someone who has lost somebody to murder, But every single time I've sat in somebody's living room and talked to them about their 12-year-old daughter who was murdered and raped and strangled, the idea of this person in front of me, these parents crying, talking about their 12-year-old, and thinking that somebody would be putting on makeup and talking about that same 12-year-old at some point is sickening to me. I compare it to murderabilia. It's nothing- What's that? Murderabilia is like people who collect artwork from serial killers. Oh, like when they bid on like Ted Bundy's car kind of things. His glasses. Somebody wrote to me and I spoke to this person who has a pair of BTK's underwear, his glasses. Oh, God. No, wait. Whoa. That's just, that's a whole other disgusting avenue. So that's murderabilia. There's a whole market for murderabilia. So this to me is exploitation in the grandest form, right? It really, really is. Yeah. You know, I, in researching this topic for our discussion today, I did admittedly fall down this rabbit hole of watching multiple makeup videos really to see like what the point is 
I was really hoping that, you know, by the end of these 20, 30 minute long clips, there would be some kind of actionable suggestion that fans can do, whether it be like, here's a hotline or, you know, if it's an active case, like here's where you can send tips to. But a lot of them pick, you know, old open and shut cases. So it really just is what I was saying earlier of how I look at true crime coverage. It just falls under straight up storytelling. It is just sit around the campfire and it's storytelling of how something started, what happened in the middle and how it ended. And I was just frustrated because I'm watching these videos and these girls are really good at makeup. And I literally just wanted to know how the hell she was putting on that contour. And she doesn't say. It's just What's the point of doing the makeup if you're just sitting there watching them? She could just say it and not have to do it. It just it was so confusing to me. The whole thing is perplexing. To me, it's not perplexing. It's offensive. It's ridiculous. It doesn't need to be done. Put the makeup on, sit in front of a camera, and then tell your story, okay? You know, mixing the two is just trying to start a trend, trying to start a new trend in true crime. And and it's started, and it's growing. You know, the first person who created it has 2.1 million followers on TikTok, and there have been a handful of other true crime fans, makeup aficionados, that have followed suit and done very similar videos that are getting millions of clicks on their own. So it is a trend that only seems to be growing at this point. That's the scary part of it for me. It is growing, that it is a trend. As consumers of this content, true crime, we have to be responsible as well. Because what you're seeing now, you're seeing, I'm seeing a lot of hammering going on of true crime. There's a lot of articles coming out about, you know, are we exploiting victims? Are we doing the right thing? True crime is growing out of control and people are trying to figure out if this is right or wrong now. It's, you know, it's starting. It's starting. It's not going to stop it. It's too big now. But are the consumers listening is the hard part. They're not. They're just consuming and consuming and consuming. You could argue, too, that, you know, this makeup stuff and these Twitter and all is just a way to reach that demographic. The, the 18 to 25-year-olds, right. because they don't watch true crime documentaries on TV. They don't watch TV at all, right? No, so, so they're not watching Dateline. Right. So they have figured out a way to reach each other with true crime. I just disagree with it, and I think it's wrong, and I think it's tasteless, and I think it's exploitation of victims of murder. Yeah, I mean, it's using someone's pain for entertainment. At the end of the day, Everett, what does it come down to for you with this? It's just about having respect for the dead. Is putting on your makeup while talking about a grisly murder respecting someone's memory? No. But there are some people on social media who are doing their best to respect those who have gone on before us. Not going to argue with you there. I found some great accounts. A TikToker named Alicia Williams, she goes by her handle at Lady Taffos. She's taken a completely different approach to covering true crime by posting what feels like these therapeutic videos of herself cleaning old weathered gravestones and restoring them to their former glory. And another TikToker named Caitlin Abrams, she goes by at Manic Pixie Mom. She does the same thing, but she also discusses the descendants' life, death, and legacy. This is the grave of Mary McFarland. 
Mary was born in 1847, the youngest child of Daniel and Anne Jeanette McFarland. They had three other children, Franklin, Ebenezer, and Eliza, who sometimes went by Josephine. Mary died in 1860 at the age of 13 of diphtheria. Just three years later, the family would lose the patriarch, Daniel, who died at age 57 of typhoid fever. Three years after that, Mary's brother, Ebenezer, died at age 25 of consumption or tuberculosis. So there are plenty of people on social media who are doing good in true crime. And it's just a lot of what we talked about in this episode, I emphatically disagree with. And a lot of it, I think, is exploitation. And that's something I'm always going to fight against. Yeah, I think it's be careful with the information you have. Be responsible. Share it with the people that need it. Don't share it with the strangers who follow you just to get likes. Well, that was a great conversation about an important issue in true crime that needed to be discussed. We discussed it. And now it's peace out for both of us until next week. Yeah. See you next Tuesday. Crossing the Line is a production of iHeartRadio. It's executive produced by me, M. William Phelps, and iHeart executive producer, Christina Everett. Special thanks to our producer, Catherine Law, and audio engineer, Brandon Dickert. Research is by Marissa Brown. Additional thanks to Will Pearson at iHeartRadio. The series theme, number 444, is written and performed by Thomas Phelps and Tom Mooney. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 